0: Welcome to episode 422, where I spoke with George Tillman Jr., the director of Big George Foreman, Men of Honor, Notorious, and The Hate U Give. This director got his start in 1997 with the film Soul Food. Thanks to this credibility, it led to his other films, such as Men of Honor, Notorious, Faster, and now he's back with a biopic as Big George Foreman. The simple description for this latest film reads the life and boxing career of George Foreman. But it's actually an underdog story that focuses on the two lives of the boxer after George's real religious transformation and, of course, before. In this interview, Tillman discusses making Soul Food and Men of Honor, working with De Niro and Cuba Gooding Jr., sticking to your why as a filmmaker, the iconic movie Brat Pack of Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese, and how directors can find screenwriters to collaborate with. If it's your first time here, hit that subscribe button. You can also go over to brockswinson.com to get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the book and audiobook over at brockswinson.com.
1: You know what, man? I remember in nineteen—got to be nineteen seventy-five. It was the first time I went to a movie theater. I was going to uh, summer school. Um, At this church, actually, this church that I went to had summer school. And the first, (laughs) they actually took us to a movie theater. And the first movie theater I ever been to was downtown Milwaukee. And uh, the first movie I ever seen was this movie called Cooley High, uh, directed by Michael Schultz. And it was kind of advertised as the Black American Graffiti at the time. (laughs) And man, that movie was amazing. I was laughing, I was crying. And then when it got down to the love scene between the two protagonists in the story, I remember our teacher said, told all the kids to close their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that, man, how the audience was just enthralled. And ever since then, I just caught the bug. And then I remember my first VHS videotape I bought, which was Taxi Driver. Mm. Uh, I was much older. I was like junior high, you know, and I bought the VHS and I was just blown away with the visuals and the backdrop of New York City and the score. So those were that set me on my way to really wanting to tell stories. Did you always want to
2: be a director? Did you see yourself as a writer director? How, how did you kind of first break in?
1: Always saw myself. I never was a writer, man. I always felt like, you know, I started off writing to myself at home and then film school, but once I started making films, I always just sort of considered myself a director. Um, it was a means to get to where I needed to go to. And then when Soul Food, you know, that was something that was about my family in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the soul food dinners. And that was out of, you know, just being necessarily, how am I going to be a director? Write your own story. So it took me like two and a half years to get that story where a normal screenwriter would do it in six weeks, you know, eight weeks. Uh, It took me two years, but I had something to say and that was my way in. Um, And that's how um, I see myself as a writer only by, you know, by need basis.
2: I would imagine, I mean, how difficult was it in ninety-seven to get a like black story like that out there? It seems like now Netflix has a variety of minority stories and everything else, but how difficult
1: was it to get that movie made? Oh man, it was uh it was it was a it was a step, but I had it it was tough. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We made it for like eight million dollars. But what was helping was at that time Waiting to Exhale came out, directed by Forrest Whitaker, and it was a woman it was a story about four women. And it made a lot of money because uh, the baby face did a great soundtrack that just propelled the music in the film. So by the time I came, it was a little easier uh, mm-hmm. when they read the script. But, you know, seven million dollars. I mean, that was their there's that's what thats the kind of money they made on the soundtrack of that movie. So they just took a shot. Liggy, seven million dollars, eight million dollars to see what happened. We went back to Chicago and it was did and we did it. but it was tough because at that time it was only a certain amount of stories was being told, maybe three a year, four a year, maybe African American stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like my film at that time had a universality that everybody can sort of connect with. I felt that way when I saw Barry Levinson, Avalon, which is about his Jewish family as immigrants moving to America. And in the 40s and 30s, I think, those yeah, 30s and 40s. And I felt like, hey, I I can relate to that even as an African-American man. And that what got me to tell that story.
2: Hmm. So it's a couple of years, I think, between that and Men of Honor. Men of Honor was one of my favorite movies kind of growing up. Tell me a little bit about how you, I think maybe the success of
1: Soul Food led to that. But tell me a little bit about the in-between of those two. Yeah, that was an interesting time because I was going to, At at that time, I was going to start writing something else again. And I'm not a writer. I I couldn't wait another two years to do it. And uh, Fox bought this script for me called, you know, it was called Navy Diver at the time. It changed it to Men of Honor. And I was just blown away. But I was afraid of doing that movie because the first thing, I couldn't know how to swim. And I knew (laughs) it would be a lot of things in the water. You know, I know we had to be in water. So I had to like get over that, learn how to swim. And then we went out, and started casting, and I remember Robert De Niro at one point read the script at an early stage, and he wanted to direct it. Mm. So we reapproached him as an actor, and he came on, and Cuba Gooding came on, and it sort of we had our two leads, and that process was like a, I believe it was 81 days to shoot that movie, just to, to shoot the drama, and then you shoot the water for four weeks right after. Um, but it was a great process and um, you get a chance to tell the story of Carbouchure, the first African-American Navy diver. Uh, it was a great experience from soul food from seven, 8 million to like a $35 million movie.
2: Are there any difficulties talking to like two actors, Cuba and De Niro in this case, where like they're very much opposed to one another. I mean, it's really a story of kind of hatred eventually to mutual respect, but how do they handle that? Is it tense on
1: set, in the, at least in the first half of the movie? Yeah, De Niro, I mean, they they are two different kind of actors. Cuba can get in and out of character very quickly, and De Niro stays sometimes in character, um, and he just stays in that mind frame. Um, and I remember there's a scene where there's a confrontation where uh, Cuba's character, Carl Schur, confronts him for being racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in that scene when they realized they had something in common, which was the, where they come from, with their 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 years of working in the fields, that as as a black man and the white man, um, that scene was very intense all day, you know. And that's when you have really great actors who can kind of carry that over the course of the movie and be able to see that arc at the very end. Like I say, Cuba can come in and out of it very quickly and and De Niro sometimes stays in the role there. And that was just a really great idea that actors have different uh, ways of how they approach a role in different ways, how they stay in it, you know? So that was a great, uh, great way to see, see that and learn at that time. Looking across your career with soul food, men of
2: honor, notorious, faster, it seems like maybe you're taking on greater and greater responsibilities. Do you have any advice for young novice filmmakers who are maybe they've made their first indie and now they've got, A chance at a 5X budget than the first one?
1: Yeah, I think the main thing is stay true to what story you want to tell. Where do you want to sit? Where do you want to say? You know, sometimes as you're telling the story, you know, you got a lot of obstacles trying to budget, financial, uh, location. And then all that gets in the way while you're shooting. And you got to be able to tune that all out Mm. and kind of keep reminding yourself, why do I want to tell this story? Why is this story important to me? And that is the important thing, is be able to stick to the why. And that's what filmmakers do, is be able to entertain, but also have audience to walk away. So that's what I say for filmmakers, is just keep your eye on the prize. Keep looking at the very end result, how you want to get there, because there's going to be a lot of obstacles thrown at you. Even from the early stages, trying to get a financial individual to pay for the movie, trying to get the actors. You'll get a lot of passes. You'll hear a lot of no's before yeses. But just keep there, keep strong, and eventually you'll be there in the, in the end. And I think that's the, one of the true things as a filmmaker is not get strayed by all these obstacles. Mm. Let's let's jump ahead
2: a little bit to your newest film. How did you first
1: get involved with the George Foreman? That was great. Uh, my relationship with Tom Rothman over at Fox, he told me about the material. It was sitting there and they wanted to do something with the film. And I knew the George Foreman story. I love boxing. And um and the, the main thing is trying to straddle both sides in terms of spirituality, boxing, and the journey. Mm. And his story was when I sat down, it was like, hey, why don't you take a crack at it and you know, develop the script, write it. And I didn't want to write by myself, or that's where um Frank Baldwin came in and I was able to get back to writing for for, for years of being away. And um, that process was developing the story, getting to George in the fifth ward and his push as a young man to become who he becomes, you know, the heavyweight champion again at 46, this time for being selfless and being selfish. And I just thought it was just such a great story. And that's how that story came to me.
2: Yeah, for those unfamiliar, could you talk a little bit about Foreman? Because he was kind of a, I don't know, a mean guy, to say the least, in the beginning of his career.
1: What kind of changed in his real life to that you wanted to display in the movie? Yeah, I think that the key was, you know, just being this guy from the Fifth Ward where everybody, you know, is really true. You can't judge a book by his cover. And a lot of people did just because of how he dressed. The teachers didn't want to choose him in class. Some of his own family members family members would say he would never amount to anything. And here's this guy who just kept pushing and boxing was the way and anger was the way to solve it. His fists. Um, I just thought it was brilliant. And it was a very important moment when he has that spiritual awakening in in the middle of the film, in the middle of his life, that completely changed everything and 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 how this guy completely changed his life. It wasn't overnight. You have to constantly work at it. But I just thought he's completely different from the Ali, the guy who's fighting against Ali and the anger and how. He just wanted to hurt and kill with his fists, and then to a guy who became selfless and a minister, Mm -hmm. and then had to go back to boxing. And how do you go back? Is you're going to have to let all those old things go. And he did it and became champion again. And I just thought that is a great story for anybody of a lesson, even as a filmmaker. It's a lesson: is just keep pushing. So tell me a little bit about the writing process with Frank
2: Baldwin. How did you kind of go about it as more of a co-writer? Is it just mostly conversations or what was some of the
1: logistics of that? Well, first, we spent a lot of time just talking through his whole life. There was many books on George and then spending time talking to George. And once you do that, you just start writing all these things down in the treatment because you deal with somebody's life and you make the choice. Do I go all the way from beginning to end, you know, of his life from the 60s to his championship belt or you just deal with a certain section of his life? We felt like we needed the whole thing. and But that became a challenge. Like you can't put everything in there. So that was the idea of just putting out a treatment and breaking things down per act. And then making sure that through line is pretty much settled throughout the material. Um, And that was a tough project because, you know, we will write 30, Frank will write 30 pages, give it over to me and he'll keep going. I would take in the 30 pages, start doing my rewrite and then we'll meet each other in the middle and then we'll take a pass through it again. And then at that point, I would do read throughs where I will just read through the material to make sure the pacing of the story is there. It's just that kind of story when you're dealing with somebody's real life and somebody who's living, you know. Um, the great thing was that he was always there. We needed a phone call if he had any questions. And that's the awesome thing about it.
2: I interviewed um, Jonathan Eag, who wrote the 2017 uh, biography about Muhammad Ali. He says during research, he looks to biographies for facts and autobiographies for feelings. Do you? How do you think about like truth on the page when you're looking at something like this, or is it more about, well, this is what George says happened. Like, how do you think about some of those things when you're getting to a movie? I think the page,
1: what you see in by, in books is facts, definitely factual. And it kind of gives you the atmosphere. Then when you talk to the act, the the real true person who you're making a movie about, it becomes about a feeling, you know, and you sort of combine those two things together, but then you got to remember what is the story you're telling? What, what is the story that you're saying? And that's when it becomes the drama side begins to, you got to put all those things together, take out what doesn't sort of work for the drama, you know, and there's a three act structure and there's a scene structure that you got to follow. Sometimes facts gets in the way, feelings doesn't, Mm. that sort of underlines the thematic point of the whole story. So um, that is a learning thing that you're constantly going back, rewriting, changing, that doesn't work uh oh yeah this scene doesn't work in the book how do i change this so it's a constant tough thing to do with biopics so frank's got credits
2: for cold pursuit your honor 61st street do you have any advice for like finding a writer to collaborate with like what kind of stood out about frank that you wanted to work with him i read a
1: script that frank wrote a real true story about a football player who you know who joins the military and and fights during the Gulf War. And I just thought it was really interesting. Mm. Um, great script. It never got made. And I think that's the key is keep writing, write specs. Um, even that just sort of became a calling card for me, even though it didn't get made. Um, and I think that's just, it's it's like it becomes an example, you know, a sample for producers and for directors and writers. So that's the key. Did you look to any
2: other boxing films? Because it seems like, most boxing films tell a very specific story. This is still has the underdog part there that they're so known for, but it's much different. How did you kind of keep making sure your film was different as opposed to other films we've seen?
1: I watched it all before even I started the movie, you know, I was just such a huge fan of boxing films. When the movie started, I sort of prep started. I sort of stopped watching. I didn't look at them as a reference. Mm-hmm. I just felt like um, for my last movie to hate you give this sort of came out of instinctive. Um, and that's one of the things that I was pushing for. Cause I feel like the originality is I've never seen a character who's a boxer, heavyweight champion, stop, leave, and quit and preach and never wanted to make a fist again. So I knew that was something I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like the originality wasn't any place or guidelines I could follow, yeah. you know, in terms of that. So in my instincts of watching those other boxing movies, I just know in terms of where I wanted things to be visually in the ring. But um, it was more again, what is the story I'm trying to tell? What's the story you want to be able to follow? And that, and that was a, a important lesson for me. It's just, just keep following your instincts and not rely on reference. So a
2: lot of people today may know George Moore from infomercials or later in life and that kind of thing. Is there anything or maybe they've seen him in other films as kind of a side character? Is there anything he wanted to bring to the screen or did he just kind of put his faith in you to make the
1: film? His most important thing that he really cared about was the the, the, the spiritual awakenings and transformation that he had in Puerto Rico after the Jimmy Young fight. Mm. And and many people were saying he had a heat stroke and he fell out and he came back out of consciousness. He said he had a death, life and death experience that he went away. He was in a blank black hole and he smelt death and he said, I believe. And he came out. He saw the difference of life and death and he wanted that right. Because he couldn't really, he explained it, but a lot of people didn't understand why anybody wanted to stay away, quit at the height. <clears> mm-hmm. So that was <clears throat> that was something that was important to get right. And the second thing was important: his relationship with his mother. He, you know, he wanted to put out there his mother never liked him the box. She never came to a boxing fight. So that's something that we wanted to honor him. And the rest, he really set us and gave us, you know, carte Blanche to tell the story we wanted to tell. Mm. Kind of looking back at your career, do you
2: you have any like false beliefs early on as a director? Anything that you were sure about that's changed over time? Anything that's any of your habits that have changed about directing?
1: No, I just think in the beginning is that you, you know, in the beginning, you just sort of always want to remember, you know, in terms of storytelling, you know, is like be able to keep watching other filmmakers in 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 a way other filmmakers can sort of inspire you. And sometimes you are in a bubble because you're just working on your own thing, and I think it was the key. If you look at those guys in the '70s, like Brian De Palma, Spielberg, you know, you know, Scorsese, all those guys kind of hung out. You know, they sort of watched each other films and critique George Lucas. You know, all those guys. And I just think um, now that it's easier to make, you know, films, make stories. You don't have to shoot it on film, 35 or 16, like I did back in the days. It's less less expensive. But the, the camaraderie, it takes a village to sort of make a movie. And I think that's one of the key things that I learned over the years is having relationships with production designers and composers and, and, and you know, and cinematographers. And I think that's the key is develop a team that you're going to need. Do hmm.
2: you have any advice
1: about like building that
2: team? Is it just finding people with similar tastes and who fits what? Like, how do you kind of fill out those puzzle
1: pieces? I think the puzzle pieces is first faith, you know, finding someone that you want to work with and seeing how that project go. You know, you can, you know, when I work with the, with certain designers or certain DPs, that first film is sort of, oh, wow, we got a groove. It worked out. Mm. Let's keep going. We got a shorthand for the second time around um, for the second film. And I just think you first time is always, you know, hands to God, faith, and let's see how it goes. And you kind of build from that. But it all starts with what 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 do you like about them? What about their work that you like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it starts with there. Mm-hmm. How did you go about shooting some of the action scenes
2: in this film? Did you just mainly work with the choreographer? Did you watch other uh, boxing movies? How
1: did kind of those shape up? You know, the key for me was really, really defining what I wanted to do. I watched a lot of the fights over and over Broke down the fights, you know, YouTube watching them, time coded and this section and this section and that round. And then I started thinking of the storyboarding, storyboarding it, you know, myself, what are the shots? What do you want to tell visually? And then that came down to finding a boxing coordinator and that boxing coordinator who Daryl Foster did an amazing job. I love this work that he did on Michael Ali. And he worked really closely with building Will Smith character in terms of physicality and boxing for that movie. So I just brought him on. And that's the key that I wanted to do it in a reality base. You know, made it feel really real, like 70 Boxing, which was sometimes outdoors, you know, in Zaire or Puerto Rico, or if it was in these small Hilton hotels, small casino rooms, um, or it was in these Madison Square Garden. Just that atmosphere, how those guys fought. And really just sort of doing it to a T and really making it feel like we got it right exactly how it was done. Um, so it's a combination of my prep, my work, my storyboarding, and then having a fight, you know, coach who put all these things together in terms of teaching the boxers a technique so they can remember the choreography.
2: What were some of your conversations with Chris Davis like? Because he's making and his his character is making a spiritual transformation and a physical transformation. How did you guys talk about the
1: different forms of George throughout the film? uh, The key is I love working with actors. Once he came on board and realizing that he was he had the height to play big George and younger George, you know, at six, two with the body frame that he had. It was sort of breaking down the through line of who is George. I was George you know, vocabulary in terms of how he talks, his dialect, you know, from, from Houston in the fifth Ward at that time in sixties and seventies. And then the way he walks, you know, and sort of building that from act one to midpoint and how that changed being a minister minister, mm-hmm. you know, from a minister. And then later on, Chris was, we were able to stop the movie in mid production for six weeks and he gained the weight. And once he gained the weight, it was a different behavior. It's a different walk. It's a different guy that we know, George, for infomercials or the grill. So that becomes another body language. And that's sort of being was worked on for a year mm. after we highlighted in each scene what is sort of going on in behavior-wise. Um, this is the same thing going on while we have in the boxing, you know, you know, camp as well. So that is constant conversations, constant talk and relationship. That's why actors and directors relationships are very important in terms of the collaboration. You know, it's more of a partnership the way I see it. Yeah. Was there ever talk of using two
2: actors or was it always meant to
1: be one actor with a break in between? I always wanted to use one actor with a break in between. I really did. I didn't, I didn't feel like I could have three because we have the young boy at a young age and I felt that would just be a little confusing. You know what I mean? So with two, I just felt like that was the plan um and it sort of like worked out you just need an actor who can have that dedication to pit, put on 50 pounds who can drop the weight and you know pick up the weight you know and get the body carved just like George was carved. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of weight training in there too on top of the acting with the rehearsals. So he had a busy schedule but it started with the dedication and that was just me informing all the things that I needed to get the role the way I imagined
2: Getting a lot of great advice already. We'll just do one or two more. Um, Do you have any advice if you were starting today, how you might try to break into the industry as a writer or writer director, or as a, sorry, as a director
1: or writer director? I think the key is, man, I I have two assistants who are now not my assistants and they both are doing their own independent film, their first feature. The key is they write their own material, their own script, their own stories, the stories that only you can tell and find a way to raise your own money or find a way to do it very cheaply. That's the way, how to break in. A lot of people, individual comes up and say, I have a story. It's like, well, why do you have a story? You can write a script. Just get the script. It starts on the page first. And if not, if you're the director, finding a piece of material, a writer who has something that you want to direct, and there becomes a business side up to it. How are you going to do it? Are you going to raise the money or are you going to try to shop it around? I always believe shoot your own films. That is the only, that's the first Most important calling card out of anything. That shows the talent, the commitment, and it shows what kind of stories you want to tell. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you
0: a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. and get your copy, that's a digital download and audiobook, at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never missed an episode.